the word of God, the message that you have for us from Luke's gospel. Lord, each and every one of us have come into this building with different cares and concerns, different things that are competing for our attention at this very moment. We cast down every wicked and evil imagination, every thing that would distract us from hearing what the word of God has to say to us. We pray now, Lord God, that this truth would convict our hearts and convince us, Lord, that we would leave differently than the way we came in this morning. We pray all these things for your glory and in your holy name. Amen. Well, upon taking office in 1929, President Herbert Hoover charged uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, with bringing down Al Capone. The federal government approached the problem by attacking Capone's organization on two fronts. The first was mounted by criminal investigators in the Treasury's Bureau of Internal Revenue, who would examine the financial records of Capone and his subordinates to see if they could be prosecuted for tax evasion. The other front would consist of a special unit of the Bureau of Prohibition. You remember back in those days, alcohol was prohibited, and there was a law against alcohol. It was prohibition, and organized crime figures like Al Capone made tons of money illegally selling um, uh, alcohol and bootleg liquor. And it was, um, it was Capone's beer and liquor empire that really made him all the money. And they went after that by raiding those speakeasies and stills and breweries. And it was led, you may remember if you know your history, American history, it was led by federal agent Elliot Ness and his group of men that he deputized called the Untouchables. And the reason they were called the Untouchables is because Capone had um, kind of cornered the organized crime market because he would bribe uh, law enforcement, politicians, and different people. And these men were picked and chosen specifically by Elliot Ness because they could not be corrupted. They wouldn't take a bribe. And they were untouchable. That's why they called them untouchable in that sense. And these were men that he chose from, from different backgrounds. One was a former Irish prize fighter. One was a state, uh, a Texas um, state trooper. Um, the other was um, uh, a cor correction officer on death row. And he chose all these men for these different skill sets and unique character traits they, they, that they had. But that's not what gave them the power when they went banging down the doors of these speakeasies. It wasn't their skill set, as important as that was. It wasn't their unique abilities, even though that was good. It was the fact that they had been deputized and vested with the government's authority and power. So that when they went banging down a door and, and wrangling criminals out of their, you know, their hideouts, they had all the power of the government behind them. All of the government's authority of law enforcement. Well, chapter 9 here in Luke marks this transition where Jesus goes from single-handedly performing miracles and casting out devils to empowering his disciples, deputizing them, if you will, to do all of the same things 
that he's been doing. So up in the first eight chapters of Luke, Jesus is a sole player on the scene. He's the miracle worker. He's healing. He's saving. But here in chapter 9, he equips the disciples with the same power and the same authority that he has. And it says in verse 1, he called the 12 together and gave them power. We're going to look at three things this morning. Power, proclamation, and provision. Power, proclamation, and provision. And the first is power. He calls the 12 together and gives them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. They're commissioned to do what Jesus is doing. The demons now don't just fear Jesus, they fear the disciples too. You see, power is proof that God is present. One of the promises of the gospel in Acts 1 and 8 is after the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we receive what? We receive power. I heard one person say it. After the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we receive what? Power. Power. Disciples are characterized by power. When God is present, there's power. When the gospel is truly preached, there is power. When the word of God is faithfully represented, there's power. And so the disciples are given this power. And it's proof that God is present. We're all familiar with um, the movie The Exorcist. And um, it was actually based off a novel, novel written by William Peter Blatty. Uh, Blatty just passed away recently, I think, I want to say about a month ago. And Blatty was a dogmatic Catholic who wanted people to vividly believe in God. At a time when the, the front of the New York Times said, God is dead. And he thought a clever way to advertise God was to go about it backwards, as it were, to get people to believe in God's opposite number. Uh, he thought that was pretty simple. Convince people of the horrifying power of Satan and then show them that God is actually more powerful. And that seems to be exactly what's going on right here with the disciples who are invested with power over demons. It's meant to demonstrate that, yes, Satan is powerful, uh, but God, and not just God, but all who follow him, are more powerful than Satan. Now, you may think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we making the same mistake as, you know, some of those people that go around casting out demons in their own power? We're not saying we have power in and of ourselves, right? We're not, we're not demon hunters, right? You see some of those guys sometimes on, on television or have they, they have their own, you know, special program on TBN or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're simply recognizing that everything that uh, everything is unique about us as followers of Christ has to do with the fact that the power we have isn't our own. The message we preach isn't our own. The gospel we proclaim isn't our own. It's God's. But we've appropriated that power because God has given it to us because we follow his son. And the disciples, like Jesus, aren't given power over some. They're given power over all demons to cure diseases. They're given power over all demons to cure diseases. 
And so as the 12 go about the region, casting out devils and helping people, Satan's kingdom starts to unravel. I think it just got re-raveled with the, all the noise over our building this morning. Um, pause. Bye-bye plane. All right, hit play. Okay? Satan's kingdom starts to unravel as the disciples go forward in the power that they have been given. Um, and the power is a sign that something has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. That's what this power is about. It's not power for its own sake. It's, it's Jesus and his disciples aren't showing off. It's demonstration that the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus says this. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the presence of spiritual power is a demonstration that the kingdom is here. That's the point. The life of a disciple is supposed to be sanctioned by power. The power of prayer, the power of scripture, and the power of the spirit. I'm afraid that much of today's church is sadly marked by not power, but an unfortunate lack of power. Leonard Ravenhill said, Right now the church has more fashion than passion, it is more pathetic than prophetic, more superficial than supernatural, and that has everything to do with a lack of power. Power is the power behind the pulpit is prayer. The power behind your own Christian walk is prayer. Power behind what you say and what you do is the time you spend in prayer with God and in the Word, communing with God. Christ's disciples have been vested with this prophetic and priestly royal power. And as disciples of Christ, we are also supposed to be vested with that power. Now, we, we receive that power, and the Holy Spirit comes on us when we're converted, but that power has to be channeled in a way that's faithful. So when we engage in unfaithful behavior, it robs us of our confidence. Confidence is an, is an amazing thing to have before God. It's something about, um, uh, you watched the Super Bowl a few, a few um, Sundays back, probably, and uh, somewhere in the game, the Falcons lost the confidence. Sorry, Falcons fans. I, I'm just saying. I'm just, just, just an observation here. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Patriots fan, but that happened. Okay? The confidence drained out of them. Now, they had the talent. The talent was there. I mean, they started off really good, right? They started off really good. When everybody, you know, everybody here was just like, yeah. You know, they wanted to see the Patriots go down. But the confidence. <laughs> the confidence. Huh? Yes, that's my wife. My wife's from Boston. Uh, it was a happy Sunday for her. But the confidence emptied out. And when our lives are filled with sin, and we're not praying, we don't have that connection with God that is available to us because of our union with Jesus, our confidence to enact and exercise that power, it drains out of us. So the disciples... We're using that power, and we're to use it. Well, they're given this power for a purpose. 
And this brings me to my second point, proclamation. They are given power for the proclamation of the gospel, and so are you. It says in verse 2, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, this wasn't any sort of kingdom, right? This confuses some people, right? He's proclaiming the kingdom. Well, what kind of kingdom are we talking about? What sort of kingdom is this? Well, there's a lot of different views about the kingdom of God. I'm not going to get into millennial views. We can have a discussion about millennial views over coffee. So contact me if you want to talk about uh, whether pre-mill, all-mill, or post-mill is the right view. I have my own view. Some people have different views. But the biggest issue here is Jesus is announcing the arrival of a heavenly spiritual kingdom. Not a kingdom like men think. A kingdom of geopolitical power where rulers snap their fingers and you know, empires rise and fall. He's announcing a heavenly kingdom. And the Pharisees struggle with the proclamation of this kingdom. They ask in another place in Luke, when the kingdom of God should come, and Jesus responds, the kingdom of God comes not with observation, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, how is it in their midst? They're going around proclaiming the kingdom. Well, how is the kingdom present? It's present in word, and it's present in deed. The proclamation that Jesus is the only way of salvation and faith in him and that sickness and infirmities are healed. The ministry that Jesus has given the disciples, the proclamation of the kingdom, the carrying forth of the gospel message is accomplished in word and deed. Any gospel that only is only in word is only half a gospel, and any gospel that is only in deed is half a gospel. The gospel itself is a message of word, about the truth, the reality of who reigns, and where and how our sins can be forgiven and our relationship with God made right. And it's also actions, the life and love of Jesus Christ embodied in what we do to our neighbor. Kingdom proclaimed in word and proclaimed in deed. The church mediates the grace of God to the world with these words and deeds. Right? The power is from God. It's God is the dispenser of grace, but he does it through the, the witness of the church. This is why proclamation for us is so important. And it's a foreign concept for us because we live in a time where you keep your opinions to yourself. Right? We live in a time where, you know, live and let live. Right? That's what the Beatles said. No, they said live and let die. <laughs> but that's, that's just the, the, the age we live in, right? You, just, you don't want to step on anybody's toes, right? Well, that goes against the gospel. Because if Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life, then to not step on someone's toes and tell them about how they can be saved and have eternal life is really the meanest thing you could do. It's the rudest thing you could do. It's the most unkind thing you can do. 
not to tell someone about how they can be saved, about how they can have eternal life, about how they can know God. It's not polite. It's actually quite cruel. And this is the ministry of release that Jesus spoke of, this proclaiming of the kingdom in word and deed. Remember, when we were in chapter 4, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, preach liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to, to the blind, freedom to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you notice in that statement there were both of those things together? Words about who God is and deeds. Words and deeds together. You ever seen that bumper sticker, deeds not creeds? You ever seen that? Right? You ever heard that phrase, you know, deeds not creeds? You know, that's a reaction against a word-only gospel, but that itself is also kind of a pendulum swing too far in the opposite direction. You know, because that statement itself is kind of a creed. Right? We don't need just words, and we, just, we don't need just deeds. We need both of those things together. Okay, point made. Um, one of the things I think in our culture right now as Christians that we struggle with, I don't know that we struggle so much with deeds. Maybe some of us do, but you know, it's, you know, if your neighbor's trash can falls down the driveway on a windy day or something, you'll, you'll probably pick it up. Or, you know, if, you know, you see someone, you know, and you're able to help someone push their stalled car, you'll probably get out of your car and help them do that, right? I could, especially here in the Midwest, pretty polite society. I'm from Los Angeles. It's a little different, but because all the traffic you'd have in your car, you might get hit. But I don't know that we struggle so much with deeds. But we struggle, I think, in our time with the words, the proclamation, the heralding of the gospel. So this morning, I might, I'm kind of contradicting what I just said. I just talked about the importance of word and deed together, but I want to, this morning, privilege the heralding of the gospel because I think that there's a lack of courage right now in the age we live in, especially for Christians. I think we struggle with the courage to say things to people, and I think we struggle assuming that the gospel message is just out there. But, you know, you can never assume the founding fathers of this country, many of which were Christians, not all, some were deists, they just assumed, the reason, one of the reasons why they didn't put uh, anything about uh, explicit faith in Christ as a part of our founding documents as a nation, is it was just assumed. It was just assumed that everybody was Christians at that time, and most people were, and it was just assumed that the gospel message would be carried forward, and it was just assumed that we would continue to be a nation built on Christian principles and all these things. And, of course, we've seen the slow deterioration of those things. And one of the reasons is because it can never be assumed. The gospel can never be taken for granted. It always must be proclaimed. It always must be proclaimed. Why? Because our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are fall, prone to fall back into sin. Our hearts are, in many ways, idol factories. Our hearts are prone to fall into idolatry. We need to hear the gospel message over and over and over again. And even those of us who are here this morning who love Jesus, faithful church attenders, got some good theology in us, we need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. We need to hear it. We need to know it. We need to speak it. 
And that means our voice to the world has to be both prophetic and priestly. The prophets went around in ancient Israel when the nation fell into sin and they proclaimed and condemned abominations. This is not what the Lord has called you to. This is sin. This is an abomination. Repent. That was the voice of the prophet. But then there was the priests. And the priests said, you've sinned, but here's where you can find atonement. In the shed blood of the sacrifice. See, when we proclaim the gospel, we are speaking with a prophetic voice and a priestly voice. We are saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God has created us to worship him. Repent of your sins. And then with a priestly voice, we point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us. Proclamation of the gospel. So Jesus gives his disciples power over demons and sickness to proclaim the kingdom and heal. And then he promises a third thing. He promises provision. Gives them power so they can proclaim. And then says, I'm going to provide for you. Look at what he says in verse 3. Take nothing for your journey. Verse 3. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. What Jesus is telling them is, this power to proclaim the gospel is, should not be distracted, should not be detoured by material concerns. Why? Why aren't we to be preoccupied with material things? Now, we all like material things. But we're not to be preoccupied with those things. Because it brings the message into disrepute. They, were to move, they, they weren't to move from house to house in a village seeking better accommodations. He says, in whatever house you go in, stay there. Even if there's, dust, there's a dust floor. Even if it's just a small little room. If you go there and someone grants you hospitality, stay there. Don't worry about a more comfortable lodging. Don't worry about a bigger place with better amenities. If someone is willing to open up their home to you and receive your message, stay there and let your blessing come to that house. You know, there were a lot of people in the time of Paul preaching a gospel of fame and fortune. In 2 Corinthians, probably Paul's most vehement diatribe in any place in the New Testament is against the false apostles. Actually, he calls them super apostles. They were competitors of Paul, preaching somewhat of a gospel. In the ancient world, if you were a, a, good, um, uh, a good rhetorician, right? You, you were schooled in rhetoric, you charged money for it. In fact, if you went around not charging money for it, people just thought you weren't worth, you weren't worth much, and your message wasn't very powerful. And of course, Paul wants to give this free offer of the gospel, and he's not charging people to speak. And some of the church, the Corinthians, were thinking... Maybe this guy's message is, you know, not very powerful, not very meaningful, not very important, because he's not even charging. It's free. You know, you know how it is when you go somewhere and you see something on sale, and it's really cheap, and, you go, and at first you're like, man, that's a great deal. Then you go, why is it so cheap? I do that. You know, 
But that's, that's what they were thinking. And what Jesus is telling the disciples is, look, wherever you go, don't be preoccupied with those things. About what you're going to wear, where you're going to sleep, what you're going to eat, those material things. I'll provide for you. And the point is, for us, God provides for those who are doing his kingdom work. God provides. Matthew 6.31 says, Therefore, don't worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans pursue all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows. Right? God knows you need clothes and a roof over your head and food to eat. God knows those things. But, but, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things, clothing and shelter and food, will be added to you. Matthew 6.31. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, Modesty is the rule because ministry is the focus. I like that. There's a lot of transferable wisdom for us here. When we seek the kingdom as disciples of Christ, God, our Heavenly Father, provides for us too. The early Christians, they had nothing, but they carried the message from town to town, from home to home. The Lord provided. The church and its community and power was their treasure. And I guess I want to ask us this morning, where is your treasure? Where's your treasure this morning? Is it in houses and land and clothing and material goods? Or is your treasure in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal? And a super recession or the economy tanking can't touch? If your treasure is in heaven, it really doesn't matter what happens down here. It can't be touched. I'm not saying bank accounts and 401ks and things like that don't matter. They matter. But if that's where all of your hope is, you're going to falter. You're going to fall. Our hope and trust is in Jesus Christ. Our treasure is in heaven. So we've seen the power that the disciples receive, the ministry of proclamation that is given to the disciples, and God's provision for those who go about his kingdom business. And then lastly, Jesus gives a rule for rejection. Look at what he says in verse 5. And wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So we've got all this power proclaiming the kingdom God is providing for us. And then we go, I mean, this is, this is almost a weird, curious statement. You know, Jesus is saying, you know, you're getting charged up with all this power, all this authority to preach and to cast out devils. You go from town to town, you know, proclaiming and healing, um, but not everyone's going to receive it. I mean, if I was a disciple, I would have went, what? You know, he says, for those that don't receive your message, just shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. You know, you go in the backyard, you know, you your shoes have dirt, and then you hit your feet, and then like a little dust cloud pops up. This is actually an act in um, ancient Judaism against the Gentiles. The Gentiles wouldn't receive the law of God, and when the Jews went somewhere, if they were treated poorly, they were to shake the dust off of their feet as a testimony, as a judgment against them. 
This is actually something quite common. Well, Jesus kind of flips this idea up on its head, and he says that wherever you go in Israel, now it's not just the Gentiles, but it's the Jews. If they don't receive anyone, Jew or Gentile, this message, shake the dust off of your feet against them. Um, I've shared in the past that when I was in my early 20s, 1920, and I was so zealous now, I remember the church I was at, you know, I told the pastor, we need to be out there preaching the gospel. He says, well, show up on Sunday morning, and we'll announce it to everybody. We're going to go street preaching. And I showed up at you know, 8 a.m. on, not Sunday, Saturday morning, and I was the only one there. <laughs> and he said, well, brother, it's just you and me. And I said, let's go. And it got to the point where just Saturday after Saturday, I was always the only one. I would just go out alone street preaching. And I would have Bible tracts in my hand. And I would knock on doors, and, and the church was kind of, it was in the hood. I mean, it wasn't a great area. There were a lot of low-income housing, you know, places. And, you know, a lot of people were nice and friendly, and some people weren't nice and friendly. And you bang on some people's doors, and you hear, who is it? You know, it's Jordan from so-and-so church down the street. I want to tell you about Jesus. I mean, that's all I knew. It wasn't sophisticated. I didn't meet with, you know, ministry experts. It was just, I'm just going to do what the disciples did. And at that time, I was living in the high desert, about an hour north of Los Angeles, and it was a dusty place, and there weren't sidewalks in front of every house. And I literally, when people would be rude to me, I would just go, <laughs> and turn around and walk away. And they just looked at me like I was crazy. But it was because of this passage. The message of the gospel is urgent. I didn't have time to go, oh, you don't want to hear about Jesus? No, and that's not what Jesus does with the disciples either. He says, this message of the gospel is urgent. This is important stuff. And if someone will not hear you, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. And that's a good message for us today. It doesn't mean we're being mercenary or unkind or rude. Oh, you're lost, buddy. It's not, that's not the attitude we have, but the attitude we have is, if they won't hear it, someone else will. If they don't want to receive Christ, there is someone else who will. And salesmen know this really well. In fact, they get excited about rejection because they know how the numbers work, right? You know, after like, you know, 21 rejections, you know you're going to get a sale. So it's, it's just, you've just got to plow through the rejections. I mean, the bottom line is, look, there are people God has chosen before the foundation of the world. And they're out there waiting to hear a gospel message from us. And even those who have not been chosen before the foundation of the world need to hear the gospel message. It's not for us to figure out who they are. We treat everyone as if they're going to receive the gospel. We proclaim the gospel with a sense of urgency. And this is something that we need to understand in closing. Um, there are situations in our lives where God calls us to stand firm and proclaim truth and give patient testimony, right? It's that coworker who you've kind of got on the hook. And they're curious, but they have doubts, you know? You don't say, I'm never talking to you again about Jesus. You recognize those situations, and you, you, know, you reel them in a little bit, a little here, you know, with the line go out and tug on that thing, you know? And you can recognize those situations where God is working in someone's heart, and you need patience. But then there are other times when God just gives us the freedom to move on because the message is urgent. I don't spend a lot of time with the snarky skeptic talking about Jesus. 
You know, I pray for them, I share with them, but listen, if all they want to do is fight and argue, time to move on. This is, this is where that passage, cast not your pearl before swine, neither give that which is holy unto the dogs, comes in. Right? It doesn't mean you treat everyone like that, but some people act that way. And you know it's time to move on. We're only responsible for our obedience to God, not for the results of that obedience. I'm not responsible to convert anyone, but we are responsible to proclaim courageously the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners, and he is the only way of salvation. If you believe that that truth is really important, you'll speak it, you'll share it. Maybe that's what we need, a renewed zeal of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And finally, in verse 6, it says, And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let us leave this place with full confidence of our calling in this world. That we have in the same way been empowered by Jesus to proclaim the gospel. And if we do that, he will provide for us all of our needs according to his riches and glory. We're ambassadors for Christ. Emissaries of a heavenly kingdom given power to proclaim the kingdom of God with all of heaven's provisions. Marked by these three things. Power, proclamation, Provision. Let's pray. Father, now we, we recognize, Lord, um, as we confess this morning in our confession that we fall short and spend our energy and time often neglecting the riches of the gospel you've given us by refusing to share them with others. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of God. That you would enlighten our hearts, that we might know the hope to which we've been called. That we might know the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power to them who believe. According to the wording of your great might, empower our proclamation and let us rest in your provision.